This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hello, this is David Lang speaking. I am the Melvin Shim Professor of Law at the Duke Law School, where I've been a member of the faculty for more than 40 years. A few weeks ago, I published a co-authored article on an important copyright and first case now pending in the Supreme Court. The case is Golan versus Holder. It involves what is sometimes called copyright restoration, which refers to the restoration to copyright protection of millions of foreign works previously in the public domain under American law. The article is entitled Golan v. Holder, Copyright and First Amendment. It appears in Volume 11 one of the John Marshall Review of Intellectual Property Law. My co-authors are Risa Weaver, a 2010 graduate of the Duke Law School, who is now a member of the California Bar, and also a member of the staff at UCLA Law School, and Shiva Reed, a 3L at Duke Law, and note editor of the Duke Law Journal, who will join an Atlanta law firm, Kilpatrick Stockton, with a distinguished practice in intellectual property when she graduates next spring. From 1790 until 1989, the United States imposed certain formal requirements as a condition of obtaining federal copyright protection. For example, would-be copyright proprietors had to publish their work with notice that copyright was being claimed. Failure to do so meant that the published work would be placed in the public domain where anyone who wished to use it for any purpose was free to do so. Public domain itself was not a penalty box, I want to emphasize. It was actually meant to be the ultimate repository for all expressive works. When a term of copyright protection expired, a work would enter the public domain. In this way, copyright was meant to provide a temporary incentive to creating productivity in expressive works, and then a permanent contribution to the general store of knowledge and understanding which are available to us all. This American version of copyright protection generally worked quite well. The imposition of formalities meant, in essence, that copyright had to be taken seriously from the outset in order to be available. But elsewhere in the world, copyright systems quite often did not impose formalities. In fact, in the so-called Berne Convention countries, formalities were forbidden by the convention itself. I won't attempt to explain in detail how our adherence to Berne in the 1980s and our still later adherence to revisions in the so-called GATT tripped accords governing global trade led to the restoration legislation that made its way into American law in 1995. Suffice it to say that we have abandoned formalities as a prerequisite to copyright protection and adopted an elaborate scheme for restoring millions of foreign works to protection. In essence, restoration means that copyright is available in erstwhile public domain works. This means, in turn, that persons who might have used the works to create new works, the way Leonard Bernstein used Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet to create West Side Story, cannot do so without a license. Persons who have already begun to use public domain works prior to their restoration do remain free to use them as they had begun to do, but after a year, they too must pay a reasonable fee to continue their use. And if they are unable to agree with the copyright proprietors on that fee, then the dispute is consigned to a federal district court judge who is authorized to establish one. 
Now, how did all of this lead to the challenge in Golan versus Holder? Lawrence Golan was the conductor of the Denver Symphony Orchestra. Working pro bono with young musicians, he had relied on the availability of musical works in the public domain, including works by the Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich. Golan's use of the music was unlikely to generate revenues, so he faced the eventual imposition of unexpected fees that might bring his youth program to an end. Thus, aided by additional pro bono advocates, he brought suit to prevent that outcome by challenging the restoration provisions. The case came to a federal district court in the Tenth Judicial Circuit. In a 2005 decision, Judge Babcock upheld the legislation. The Tenth Circuit remanded the case in 2007, however, holding that restoration was a significant departure from the traditional contours of copyright, which meant that the legislation had to be subjected to heightened scrutiny to determine whether it was in violation of the First Amendment. In 2009, Judge Babcock found the legislation inconsistent with First Amendment constraints. But on a second appeal, the Tenth Circuit held in 2010 that the legislation was within permissible limits of congressional discretion, even when considered according to heightened First Amendment scrutiny. The Supreme Court granted certiorari in March of 2011 and asked for briefs on two questions. Does restoration violate the copyright clause, and does it violate the First Amendment? Briefing in the case was completed at the end of August. Risa, Shiva, and I submitted our article to the John Marshall Journal the following day. Our intention was to comment on the case as it had been briefed and as it was about to be argued before the Supreme Court, which it was at the beginning of the October term, in other words, just last month. How do we see the issues in Golan? The Supreme Court asked, as I've said, for briefs on two issues. We actually think it is realistic to elaborate them a bit further. As we see the case, there are really more like four issues. One is whether Congress has power to restore works from the public domain in general. To that question, we think the answer is no. Is it possible, however, to see a somewhat narrower second issue in other words, can Congress restore copyright in public domain works as it has actually provided for in the legislation that is now contained in Section 104A of the Copyright Act, and that is the subject of Golan's challenge? We think the basic answer is no again, and we think that this legislation does not survive. We think that actually Judge Babcock's opinion on this is correct. Now, I should say, of course, that we elaborate on these points fairly considerably in our essay. All of this seems to us to raise a third issue, at least potentially so. Does the treaty power authorize Congress to do what the copyright clause forbids? That's an intriguing question. It's never really been directly addressed or settled. We think the answer is no. In any event, this particular issue has not been briefed extensively in the Supreme Court, and we imagine that the court will probably sidestep this issue altogether. And then finally, fourth, of course we think that Congress does not have discretion to violate the First Amendment, as we think it has done in this case. But what is the role of the First Amendment in Golan? We think, broadly speaking, that there is a conventional role, and also an alternative and, frankly, better role. The former owes its provenance, such as it is, to Professor Melville Nimmer 
The latter has been suggested more recently by me and another colleague and co-author, Jeff Powell, in a book-length treatment of the subject entitled, No Law, Intellectual Property and the Image of an Absolute First Amendment. That book was published by Stanford University Press in 2009. In the time remaining, I'll say something brief about both positions. Does copyright violate the First Amendment? Nimmer asked this question in 1970, to which he responded by concluding that copyright's so-called idea-expression dichotomy was efficiently speech-protective to avoid a conflict in most circumstances. He also considered the fair use doctrine and is widely credited with having offered it as an additional safeguard against any conflict with the First Amendment, though in fact his position on that particular question was considerably more guarded than is probably understood today. He also suggested that some issues of compelling public importance might actually justify withholding copyright protection, at least protection of the more comprehensive sort. Now, I want to emphasize that Mel Nimmer, whom I knew and liked very much, was a brilliant scholar and a brilliant student of copyright with a well-developed interest and competence in the First Amendment. His essay itself was brilliant. It was, in a number of ways, a tour de force in both a doctrinal and forensic sense. But I would say, nevertheless, that it had two flaws. One was that Nimmer himself was fully committed to copyright as a public good, so much so that I suspect he could not really bring himself to entertain an answer to his question other than as he propounded it. Copyright did not violate the First Amendment, in other words, because it must not violate the First Amendment, else all be lost. This, I think, was a flaw in a perfectly ordinary and entirely human way. The other flaw, if flaw it was, lay in his commitment to a way of thinking about the First Amendment that was shared by most scholars, judges, and practitioners who thought about the subject at all. Namely, that in approaching the amendment, one should see the constraint it imposed upon Congress as balanced against the importance of whatever it was that Congress proposed to do. Seeing the Constitution as an ongoing exercise in striking balances was conventional, and whether adhering to this convention can be said to have been a flaw is, of course, debatable, to say the very least. In any event, Nimmer's view of copyright is as imposing its own speech-protective constraints has managed to capture a widely shared acquiescence among students of copyright in the years since. In the Supreme Court, which has never actually considered the question Nimmer posed in 1970 in any serious, deliberate, thoughtful, or plenary way, Nimmer's safeguards, as they have come to be called, have captured a majority of the court into two opinions in which the question has been glancingly addressed. The effect generally has been to shield copyright from First Amendment scrutiny. In Eldred v. Ashcroft, a case involving a challenge to copyright term extensions in 2003, Justice Ginsburg said that heightened scrutiny would be unnecessary so long as copyright remained within its traditional contours. It was this passage, in her opinion, in fact, that had led the Tenth Circuit to require heightened First Amendment scrutiny in Golan, since the Tenth Circuit concluded that restoring copyright was a substantial departure from traditional contours. 
If the court does know better in Golan than it did in Eldred, it is still possible that it may recognize that restoration of works from the public domain goes far beyond the traditional contours of copyright, that heightened scrutiny is fully warranted, and that properly applied, that scrutiny leads to Judge Babcock's final opinion in 2009 rather than the Tenth Circuit's opinion in 2010. If so, then the court can find that restoration legislation does violate the First Amendment after all. But I confess to some skepticism about this. Realistically, the court has avoided recognizing the First Amendment primacy vis-a-vis copyright, I think, for precisely the reason that the court does not want to face the matter squarely, does not want to curtail congressional discretion, and does not want to risk what Nimmer feared, namely, the ultimate decline and demise of copyright itself and with it the loss of incentives to creative expression that copyright supposedly affords. All of which is a pity, really, since a straightforward recognition of First Amendment primacy need mean no such consequences at all. Let me now finally address the thesis that has animated us in writing the essay that Risa Shive and I have just published. In essence, we endorse a proposal to accord an absolute primacy to the First Amendment. In the view we have endorsed, Congress could not provide for restoration on terms that would or could impose a licensing fee except as a consequence of net revenues. Lawrence Golan and others in similar position could continue to make use of the works whose availability they have relied on without fear of fees they cannot afford to pay. More generally, however, Congress would be constrained not merely in this case, but in all other copyright cases as well, against establishing copyright grounded in a regime based on exclusivity. When the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press, we think, as Justice Black did in other settings, that no law means no law. Our position in this is derived, as I have said, from a book Jeff Powell and I published two years ago. The thesis in that book is elaborated there at considerable length. I can say that recognizing First Amendment primacy in copyright is far from the death knell of copyright and far more than a small amount of encouragement to creative expression. Whether in writing the essay that is the subject of this podcast or the book itself, My several co-authors and I have hoped to advance an understanding of copyright in the image of the First Amendment that will free us all from the repression that copyright actually amounts to. Am I exaggerating this claim of repression? I am not. Let me close my remarks by quoting from the government's brief in Golan. The copyright clause, the Solicitor General writes, differs from other Article I provisions in that the very purpose of copyright protection is to limit the manner in which creative works may be used. The imposition of some restrictions on expressive activity is therefore the intended and inherent effect of every grant of copyright. And in the government's brief, the word every is emphasized. My co-authors and I suggest that no grant that can be characterized in so sanguine and confident a fashion is consistent with the First Amendment that forbids Congress to abridge freedom of speech and press.
It is time, we think, for the court to see that Professor Nimmer was wrong in imagining that copyright's doctrinal safeguards are sufficient to the need. What is needed, we would say, is a new understanding of where the safeguards actually lie when it comes to copyright. They are to be found in the First Amendment, we would insist, where they have always lain, waiting to be discovered and recognized. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.